Now I'd like to introduce tonight's moderator, Maura Dolan. Maura Dolan has been a legal affairs writer for the Los Angeles Times since 1993. She covers both the California Supreme Court and the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Prior to covering legal issues, Maura was an environmental writer and spent two years in the Times Washington Bureau. She started her career as a journalist at the San Francisco Examiner and is a very proud native Californian. Please give a warm welcome to Maura Dolan. I will introduce these, our guests here. Therese uh, Stewart, she is a top deputy in the San Francisco City Attorney's Office. She's been litigating same-sex marriage since 2004. She helped get the 4-3 decision in 2008 that gave Californians the right to marry that Prop 8 later took away. She then was involved in an effort to overturn Prop 8, and then she was involved in the federal case that went to the Supreme Court. So she's been doing this a long time. And this is David Cadell. He is the acting legal director at the Williams Institute. He's an attorney in LA whose private practice focuses on constitutional and appellate litigation, commercial litigation, and entertainment litigation. His litigation has advanced groundbreaking legal theories in connection with constitutional scrutiny of discrimination based on sexual orientation, legal recognition of relationships of same-sex couples, and the legal rights of LGBT youth. And Mary Virginia Lee Badgett (laughs) is research director of the Williams Institute for Sexual Orientation Law and Public Policy at UCLA. She studies family policy issues and labor market discrimination based on sexual orientation, race, and gender. Her latest book, When Gay People Get Married, What Happens When Societies Legalize Same-Sex Marriage?, focuses on the U.S. and European experiences with marriage equality for gay couples. Terry, I'll start with you since you were working on the Prop 8 case. Does it matter that the Supreme Court has not decided whether it's constitutional to deny same-sex couples the right to marry? I I guess it depends on your perspective. Um, If you expected the court to issue what we called the 50-state ruling where it would um, decide that you can't deny marriage to same-sex couples anywhere in the country, um, then yes, it matters a lot. Um, If your expectations were more modest and the, the other option for the court to rule on the issue was to rule in a way that was for California only, then it really doesn't matter that they didn't reach the merits for two reasons. One, because the standing ruling, the ruling that the Prop 8 proponents didn't have the right to appeal, left in place the district court ruling in favor of marriage equality. Mm -hmm. And so California has marriage equality again, and um, I think that is a done deal. Um, And the second reason is because the court in the parallel Uh, DOMA action, the case challenging the Federal Defense of Marriage Act, issued an opinion that analyzed some of the issues in a way that I think will be helpful later on in challenges by uh, advocates uh, against marriage denial in other states. Mm -hmm. Is there another case that's working its way up? Do you foresee a certain, maybe in Nevada? There's a case in Nevada. There are cases um, in a number of places, David actually probably knows what all of them are more than I do, but they, they're, there are cases in California that challenge DOMA and a lot of cases challenging DOMA that now will go away. But there are also a number of cases challenging either denial of marriage or um, repeal of even domestic partner schemes and things like that. So there's a lot percolating. And there are a lot of cases popping up right now. Uh, there are cases in Nevada and Hawaii. Uh, the ACLU today announced that they will have lawsuits in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, Virginia. So you're going to see a lot of these lawsuits. So this issue is presenting itself again in the federal courts. So how 
how long away are we from getting another U.S. Supreme Court ruling on this? Do you think four years? I mean, this litigation takes two to yeah. four years? Yeah, it can. The Prop 8 litigation took four full years. Right. Um, some of these cases, whether how long it takes will depend on whether there is a trial, mm -hmm. uh, how long the appellate process lasts. The Proposition 8 case lasted a little longer than it otherwise might because there was a year interval during the case where the case went to the California Supreme Court mm -hmm. with a question, do the proponents of Prop 8 have standing to bring this appeal? That one-year interval is not likely to be repeated in most states. Yeah, but on the other hand, there was kind of a rocket docket in the trial court where even though we had a trial, the judge uh, issued his decision something like eight or nine months, uh, well, a about a yeah. year after it was filed. And that's pretty fast. So three years, four years, I think yeah. it, it, that's about probably what you're going to see. Mm -hmm. The California the, marriage the, case also took four years, the right, California right. marriage case here. And the U.S. Supreme Court may not take another case right away. Um, we'll see. Mm -hmm. Lee, is there any advantage to being a domestic partner in California as opposed to getting married? Probably not, especially now that DOMA's demise means that the uh, federal benefits will go only, at least so far it seems, only to people who are actually married. Um, so, you know, people might still choose domestic partnership because of they want to avoid some religious connotations, perhaps, or they have some political objections to marriage. But there, there's no practical benefit for domestic partnership at all. And it's pretty clear that most same-sex couples, actually, when different sex couples have the option for domestic partnership or civil unions in other states, they get married. When uh, same-sex couples have that same option, I think you'll see many more couples getting married than getting domestic partnerships in the future. There are some, like one of the things that helped the domestic partner law pass in California was that it was open to heterosexual couples over the age of, I think, 62. And so one of the, one of the practical impacts is that to the extent um, Social Security and other benefits are tied to a marriage and a person doesn't want by remarrying to cut off that, that right, um, domestic partnership is a way of not triggering the federal law. But, but I think Lee's right that, in fact, there's a lot of disadvantages to not getting married now that DOMA right. is, is gone. Mm -hmm. And is, you, you, you know a lot about the number of couples nationwide who might be interested in getting married now because of DOMA? Yeah. Well, I think that there'll be a big boom in marriages, not just here in California where we're already seeing that, but I think now that people are going to get federal benefits, all those states where couples have been getting married, we're going to likely see a big jump up because I think people realize now it's the whole milk marriage, as Justice Ginsburg would say, and, and that's what people have been waiting for. I think uh, you know, we have, uh, according to the Census Bureau, about 650,000 same-sex couples in the U.S., maybe 100,000 have gotten married already, roughly. That's a half a million couples. That's a million people who could still choose now to get, uh, get married to somebody of the same sex. And I think as we hear a little bit more over time about what the federal government will do when somebody gets married in California and then moves to Texas, a same-sex couple, um, if they're federal employees, looks like they'll get benefits for their, for their spouses. If they're in the military, looks like they'll get benefits for their spouses. So, um, so there may be a lot of people getting in their cars, getting on planes, coming here, going to other places. New England's mm -hmm. lovely this time of year. You can get married just about anywhere there where I live. And uh, so I, I think we'll see a lot of couples traveling to get married now. Yeah. David, a lot of big corporations have pension plans uh, that exclude same-sex couples. I mean, one I happen to know of used the DOMA definition, one man, one woman, in the pension plan. Can companies continue to have these pension plans under ERISA following the DOMA decision? Well, I have to just offer the major caveat that I am not an ERISA lawyer. ERISA <laughs> is the law that governs things such as pensions uh, and certain employee benefits, and it's a very complicated area of the law. However, the, I guess one big picture point is that Previously, under ERISA, the benefits, pension benefits laws, same-sex spouses could not be included in a plan that was given preferential tax treatment. Now that DOMA's federal part has been struck down, mm -hmm. uh, the federal pension law no longer excludes same-sex couples from being included. Um, I think there are a lot of open questions about how this issue of companies who actually put in the language of their plans that it was only for, for
for different sex couples, how those pension plans will play out. Mm -hmm. But now the federal legal statutory restriction on including same-sex couples is gone. But companies may be able to do what they want? Just well, no, I mean, I, 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 think, I think we need to wait and see what regulations are issued um, by the federal government uh, as to how these plans will govern and, and what kind of guidance the federal government is gonna give. The Department of Justice has announced that they have uh, an initiative going on right now where they're having their lawyers analyze all the 1,100 statutes and regulations that refer right. to marriage to uh, provide guidance as to how they're gonna be implemented now that the federal portion of DOMA has been uh, invalidated. Is there any chance now that marriages are, same-sex marriage is legal in California, that protect marriage can go to a court and stop the marriages, Terry? There's been um, sort of noise about that on the internet, but I don't think it's a viable possibility. And I think if it were, we would have seen them do it already. Um, my sort of information that counties and cities often kind of have these informal networks. and. Uh, my sense is that some of uh, some organizations, not protectmarriage.com necessarily, have been trying to get a county to do it, to go to court or to refuse to enforce. And so far, they, they haven't succeeded. But even if they did get some county to do it, to, to try to avoid complying, um, people will remember in 2004 when Mayor Newsom offered marriage licenses to same-sex couples, the first question that reached the court um, was did the county have the power to kind of go its own way on marriage um, because of its theory about um, what the Constitution required? And the court, the California Supreme Court said no. The, the counties are just um, sort of ministerial, meaning um, they don't have any discretion. They operate under the supervision of the state. And given that, it, it, it would be very hard um, now that the sort of tables are turned for a county who wanted to deny licenses to say they could go independent of the state and um, refuse to comply when the state has issued a uh, advice saying they have to comply. Mm -hmm. And they would want to get a county to go in because they would not have standing in federal court? I think that's why they, they are trolling for a county. Mm -hmm. okay. <laughs> <laughs> And David, I wanted to ask you about the vote and the Prop 8 decision of the Supreme Court. Once a federal litigation was launched, there was a lot of talk about there being a 5-4 decision at the Supreme Court, and Justice Kennedy was going to be in the majority, and he would probably write the decision. And people kind of anticipated for a long time, and then we get this odd procedural decision on Prop 8 with a mix of liberals and conservatives. Can you talk about that a little, please? Sure, I'd be happy to, uh, just to, for everyone's information. So uh, the Supreme Court ruled in the Proposition 8 case that because the state of California itself had not filed an appeal, but had been willing to live with the trial court's ruling that Prop 8 is unconstitutional, uh, that because they had not filed an appeal, but the proponents of Prop 8, the people who had tried to get Prop, or succeeded in getting Prop 8 on the ballot, tried to file an appeal. The Supreme Court said those persons have no stake in this lawsuit um, that's any different from the stake of any other citizen in California that may have a strong view about Prop 8. And in federal court, if you want to file an appeal, you've got to show that you're personally harmed. And these people could not show that they were going to be harmed if same-sex couples were permitted to marry. Um, so the Supreme Court ruled that the initiative proponents didn't have standing if the state was willing to live with the trial court's order. So the way the court divided was the majority, it was a five to four opinion, and the majority was written by Chief Justice John Roberts, and he was joined by Antonin Scalia, and Justices Ginsburg, Breyer, and Kagan. So two Republican appointees, three Democratic appointees. And they, uh, that five, five justice majority said that the proponents did not have standing. Justice Kennedy, who you suggested might write the majority opinion, right. actually wrote the dissent. And he was joined by a, a group of lawyers that sometimes aren't always together. Um, and that included, uh, along with Justice Kennedy, Justices Alito and Thomas. That, those three together is not so uncommon, but Justice Sotomayor. And those four justices felt 
that the court had the authority to decide the case. And so the big mystery out there is what did those justices want to do <laughs> if they had decided the case? Because they didn't indicate how they would decide the case. They just voted that the court should decide the case. Did you see it as a sort of a compromise decision? I mean, there is some talk that the liberals joined Roberts on standing because at least it would knock out Prop 8 in California, and Scalia joined him because he was afraid of what Kennedy might do if Kennedy wrote a majority opinion on Prop 8, that it would go be broader. Well, you know, it's, it, it's always a tough thing from outside the court to try and figure out what may have motivated the decisions. You were, you were a clerk on the court, right? I Ginsburg? was a clerk for Justice Ginsburg, and yeah. it, it just so happens that the year I clerked, another case raising the same question of whether proponents of a, an initiative could step in and appeal if the state was willing to live with the trial court judgment striking down, a, a, a striking down a, 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 an initiative. And in that case, the vote of the court was nine to zero that the lawsuit couldn't continue and they wrote in a section of the opinion that didn't, wasn't actually binding but mm -hmm. was an indication of the views that um, in that case the proponents didn't, likely wouldn't have standing and that had been nine to zero. So I think in looking at this issue, one has to bear in mind that the court, the justices on the court actually care a great deal about these standing issues. They have five to four decisions about standing issues all the time because whether someone can get in to court determines what kinds of issues the federal courts have the power to decide. Mm -hmm. And um, I think you can read Justice Ginsburg's opinion in the previous case, the 1996, uh, 1996 case, and see that she cared very strongly that if a state is willing to live with the trial court judgment, the proponents of the initiative don't have any any power to file an appeal. Mm -hmm. um, two of the justices in the majority, Justice, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Scalia, care a great deal about narrowing who can bring a lawsuit in federal court. We'll never know what they would have done. Until some clerk writes a book there you or, go. or the justice. <laughs> but it gives, you a, gives us a sense of what they might do in a future marriage decision, no? Well, I think, I think more than um, the Prop 8 case, the DOMA case gives you a mm -hmm. sense of that. And, um, I think that you know people who uh, felt that Justice Kennedy was, you know, likely ultimately to be on the side of uh, marriage equality, you know, were were somewhat vindicated in that view by the DOMA decision, in which he wrote um, in language that, as Justice Scalia, in what I look at as sort of a fit of pique, um, <laughs> wrote in his dissent, could rather easily be modified to make the same argument in a state marriage case as was, as was used by the majority to strike down DOMA. Um, and I think, you know, and Kennedy was joined with the four um, more liberal justices and the four more conservative justices dissented. So I think, you know, you can't ever predict with certainty. And I think one of the things you were seeing here, no matter what, um, ultimately went into the calculus about who voted there was no standing or not, there was definitely a reticence on the part of um, even the most liberal justices to deal with the issue of marriage equality now. And you got that right in the courtroom itself. They were asking questions like, why did we even grant cert in this case? Should we have granted cert in this case? Meaning, why did we even take the case? Because the Supreme Court doesn't have to take the case. And that, to me, felt like they were saying, you know, well, why are we here yet? This needs to sort of percolate out there in the states, and we need to have more states decide it democratically before we weigh in. Um, and there are really good pragmatic reasons for the court to do that. And so I think that in the end, it, I think we do have a pretty good sense of where the court will come out if um, at the time the court finally takes another case, the same justices are on the court. Mm -hmm. But. Um, um, I, I think it may depend on how many states have passed. It may. I mean, I think I think the court look the the, the Adam Liptak wrote this piece speculating, and I think it's the best sort of guess that I have um, seen that the four m more conservative justices are most likely the ones who voted to take the case, and it only takes four of the nine yeah, to, to take the case, yeah. and that they weren't necessarily sure they would get Kennedy's vote to uphold Prop 8, but it was better now than later. The more time that went by, the worse it got for them. So that was Adam's mm -hmm. view. So 
Um, I think what may happen, I mean, it didn't play out so well for them. Mm -hmm. So it, they may not vote all vote to take the case the next time around um, if the dynamics, if the n nation hasn't changed that much in terms mm -hmm. of the number of states. Um, they may wait a little longer in some of these cases. And who knows? I mean, the landscape changed so quickly in the, in the years this case was pending. The next four or five years, we could see a pretty big sea change. Um, a lot of people think that the, the states that have constitutional amendments, you know, there's too many, we won't get very far. But we've seen that be not true in states that recently um, overcame. Uh, mm -hmm. ballot, or, you know, came out the right way on ballot measures. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, Lee, I hear a lot of talk about the gay rights movement now was the last civil rights movement in our country. What do you make of that? Well, so I, I've heard a lot of people say this is the civil rights issue of our generation. Or I, that yeah, the day before, I happened to be at the Supreme Court the day before uh, uh, the decisions came out and I stood in line with a, a young a couple and their kids and you know, the, the dad was telling the kids about why they were there, and, and that's what he said. This is, this is a civil rights issue of our generation. That's why I want you to be here. He was so excited to get into the court to hear the voting rights decision. Oh, well. <laughs> You're a day early. <laughs> that was not the best one to hear. But, um, but, I, but I think that's right, and I think that's something that, you know, it, it's, it's pretty well known at this point. If you, you know, if it were up to, you know, younger people in this country, everyone would get to marry. Uh, Same-sex couples would have the right to marry. So I think we're about to see. I mean, there, there's a real possibility. You know, a tipping point, which is the you know term that sometimes people use, could happen. The more states that allow same-sex couples to marry and allow people from other places to come in and get married, the harder it is to make the case that something bad will happen because we haven't seen anything mm -hmm. bad happen, and the the more people will become comfortable with that idea. And I think. You know the the progress that we're the changes that we're seeing in public opinion will just probably accelerate at that point. That's mm -hmm. you know uh, probably not a crazy prediction to make at this stage. Mm -hmm. yep. May I just may yes. just add that um, this issue has very recently galvanized people who aren't necessarily directly affected by it, but as a result of this issue have expressed a passionate desire to see justice done. And I, I do feel there's a, there's, a, there's a feeling that this is a key civil rights movement of our day. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I, we're the all in the one? same generation, yeah. but, um, <laughs> but I, there are other ones out there that are very present right now, like the immigration mm -hmm. uh, issue. And so um, it's not as though this marriage uh, struggle is the only one. And it will be interesting to see if um, the same groups that are really galvanized by this issue to see justice done, what they perceive to be justice done, will have that same, whether that will carry over into issues like immigration. Mm -hmm. I think that's really important, actually, because I think one of the, the challenges that gay people faced in some of the ballot measures was that they hadn't really very effectively built coalitions with other groups. And um, it's not that they weren't necessarily present or involved in some of the other civil rights battles, but they, they weren't as sort of politically engaged in, the, in a big way. And I think people in, I mean, the, the right on some of these issues has gotten as far as it's gotten because the left has been a little splintered and a little chaotic and disorganized. And it would be nice to see more coming together on things like Immigration Voting Rights Act, um, which Congress can hopefully repair um, and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, Protect Marriage or any group opposed to same-sex marriage could come back and try again on the ballot? Not after this decision. I mean, this decision in California is done. It's binding on the state. It's what's called res judicata, which means the thing is decided. It's been adjudicated. And um, I don't think it can be challenged again. Um, you know, the, the only circumstance in which I could imagine somebody trying, and even then, the power of a decision that's been binding is pretty strong, would be if the Supreme Court went the other way in some subsequent case, mm -hmm. thereby at least theoretically proving this decision wrong on the merits. But A, I don't think that's gonna happen, and B, I'm not sure it would work anyway, because we had our day in court in California, and it's been decided against the state um, 
or in favor of the state, depending on how you look at the state. Um, yeah. Uh, the state kind of won. Yeah. Um, and it's done. And you so don't even if the people back. voted for it, it would be unconstitutional. You, you, and you don't get to vote. Enacted. I mean, one of the few checks on voter initiatives, and, and practically the only one, really, is the federal constitution. One of the things we saw in the challenge to Prop 8 that was brought in the California Supreme Court right after the, the, the measure was enacted was the California Supreme Court saying, you know, I know we said equal protection required you to be treated the same under the state constitution, but now the voters effectively amended our, our state equal mm -hmm. protection clause. Mm -hmm. So you don't have the state constitution as a very effective barrier, but the federal constitution is something that's supreme, and there's something called the supremacy clause, mm -hmm. and you don't, states, you can't just vote your way around it. Mm -hmm. And the polls, anyway, don't the polls show uh, large majority support for same-sex marriage in California? I believe there. Yes, the yeah. latest polls. You know, I don't. You know, I can't cite a, a specific number for you, but the polls seem to be showing majorities. I think it was fifty-eight percent. The Cal the L.A. Times poll. Yeah, uh, it was a. It was almost a ten-point lead, whatever it was, or or approximately a ten-point lead, and that's bigger than we've ever had in California before. Right. Um, and it's the kind of lead. I mean, always in the past, the people I knew who knew about political measures would say, if you have a three or four or even a five point lead, it's not enough to guarantee a win on issues like this. Mm -hmm. You need a much bigger lead. Well, I think we now have a much bigger lead, mm -hmm. but I don't think they could, um, it, it would be a waste of millions of dollars if they did bring a measure because it would be struck down. Anyway, what are the consequences of the decision in DOMA for California couples? Well, a lot, actually. I mean, for California couples, like the couples in states that have marriage elsewhere, if you marry, at least, um, there, I mean, your Social Security, you will be treated as a spouse so that you can, uh, when you retire, you have choices about your own if it's um, greater or your spouse's. You, you won't be taxed on the uh, health care premiums that your employer may pay for your spouse in California, whereas tax has been withheld up to this point. Um, if you work for the federal government and you have a pension, um, you, you can designate your spouse to receive a, uh, that pension if you die. There, there are just, and, and all of these ERISA plans that even, even in some California uh, companies, as, as you mm -hmm. indicated earlier, Mara, um, that have said, you know, we won't honor a same-sex marriage because of DOMA and you can't make us. Um, I don't know legally. I think probably the answer is they have to change it. But even if they don't, they've been hiding behind this idea of, well, it's not really a marriage under federal law. And they won't have that kind of, that, that DOMA, ERISA, uh, uh, wall to hide behind anymore mm -hmm. and it's going to be blatant discrimination and so even if there's some technical reason that they can do it I think they There'll will be, be social pressure not yeah. to do yeah. it yeah. so yeah. it should mean that employee benefits and government benefits will be the same for same-sex couples now mm -hmm. on occasion that works to the disadvantage so for example some welfare related programs some programs that provide support for various kinds of people look at the income of the the married couple so if you're married, um, you might not be eligible for something that you would otherwise be eligible for. Um, but those are, I think, probably uh, a much, affect a much smaller number of people mm -hmm. than the kinds of positive benefits that, that we've been talking about. And I'll just throw in there that allowing same-sex couples in California to have their marriages recognized both by California and by the federal government will be much easier for couples who currently, or rather previously, before um, the federal portion of Delmar were struck down, they had to f they filed their taxes under state law one way, they filed their taxes under federal law a different way because the federal government wasn't recognizing their marriages. Mm -hmm. Similarly, employers, companies that have many employees, have been having to draw all these different lines between heterosexual married couples, same-sex married couples, same-sex domestic partners, and yeah, I think it will be a lot easier for a lot of employers to treat all married couples the same without having to have different ways of compensating their employees. Mm -hmm. And it's, uh, the practical benefits, you know, can 
extend way out into the future, you can actually plan now. To, you'll know what the law will be, not just when you get married and not just when you have kids later and when you get old and get Social Security benefits and when you die and you know, you know how your estate will be treated. So there's all along the course of somebody's lifetime, it really it matters to know how to actually plan for those differences. And the, the other big advantage is, is one that's really hard to put a dollar value on, but it's that people understand what marriage is. You know, you don't have to carry around a little piece of paper that says, I am a domestic partner, and explain it to everybody that you run into at a you know, car rental agency on up to a, to a government bureaucracy about what exactly that means. And we know that you know, in all the states that, that have civil unions and domestic partnerships, that's one of the big problems is that most people just don't know what they are. They're creations of the last 10 years, or, or, or actually, I guess, longer than that in California, but, but it it's just doesn't have the social and cultural meaning that marriage has. And that's, that's a big change. That's a big change. And now that it's, you know, again, the whole milk marriage, it's the whole thing at the federal level, um, it's, it's an understanding that you can arguably, you know, take across state lines, and at least to the other 13, other 12 states that are, uh, that are recognizing same-sex marriages. And you can at least, you know, make a case in other places that, you know, that somebody at a hospital might understand and be willing to recognize, even if the, the state agencies in Nevada or Illinois or North Carolina might not recognize. Is there going to be probably a lot of litigation as a result of the DOMA decision to determine how the federal government decides whether you have a valid marriage or not? My impression is that um, the Obama administration is really determined to do as much as it can without um, going back to Congress if need be. They'll probably go back to Congress to the extent there are. Many of the laws affected um, will the, the fact that DOMA's no longer there, that'll be the end of the story. That is to say, you'll have to treat gay couples who are married the same. Um, there are some laws that actually have something that um, in some way defines marriage as an opposite sex couple right in the particular benefit law itself. Those are ones where there's a question, does it need to go back to Congress? Is it something that's in a regulation that can be fixed by an administrative agency which the administration has control over? I don't think we'll see a lot of litigation over so much the substance. Some of the questions that are unresolved are things like, is it retroactive? How far back does it go? Does that depend on what, what the law is? Like normally you can go back three years on your taxes, things like that. And um, you know what happens when you, um, W will there be any benefits where the federal government will recognize a domestic partner or civil union relationship in a state that essentially treats them the same? Um, and then I think the, the, the last area where I think we will see a lot of litigation has less to do with DOMA, but it's, it's the state to state, the going from couples going um, often with children from one state to another, either traveling and, and having an accident like in that horrible Florida case where they wouldn't let the children and the spouse visit the woman, the, the mom who was dying in the hospital after the accident, um, to situations where a state might not honor the uh, parent-child relationship between uh, a married couple that's presumed in California and in the other marriage states, I think, when you're married. Um, but some other state might say, we don't, we don't honor it. Um, and so there's those kinds of going from one state that's, that treats same-sex couples equally to a state that doesn't, and, and what happens then, and what, whose law controls. And I, I guess one last thing is, um, I know the Obama administration has been trying to figure out, is it the state where a couple is domiciled, where they live, that counts for whether we, the federal government, recognize the relationship, or is it the state that they got married in, and do we care that they now live in a state that, that doesn't recognize it? And that may vary from uh, law to law, depending on the language of the law. So there are complexities that are gonna have to be worked out. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I, I do think that those will result in litigation um, in, in two ways, both from uh, couples trying to obtain rights, obtain recognition, mm -hmm. and there's another context in which these marriage law issues play out, which is in divorces. Um, right. 
So I mean, one of the one of the issues that Terry raised was this issue issue she, that she referred to as retroactivity. Um, you know, if you were a same-sex couple and you got married in Massachusetts, say four years ago, where marriage is because marriage has been legal in Massachusetts since 2004. Uh, so say you've been married legally for four years, but the federal government has been refusing to recognize your marriage this whole time until suddenly the Supreme Court on June 26 said DOMA is unconstitutional. So does that mean for federal purposes you're married beginning that day or have you been married the entire time? <laughs> um, if you've been withholding your taxes this year on the assumption that your federal taxes on the assumption that you're not married, have you actually been withholding the wrong amount because suddenly you are married? So there's a lot of practical questions about timing that are going to be difficult for people to work out. Mm -hmm. Is it any easier to separate as a domestic partner than as a spouse to divorce? Yes. If you don't have, you don't have um, children or property, you can file a piece of paper with the Secretary of State to dissolve the domestic partnership. Um, with a marriage, no matter whether you have children and property or you don't, you have to go through the court proceeding that we all love, known as divorce. Um, that brings out the best in everybody. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. But if you a domestic partnership and you have children, then it's you have to go through the divorce. yeah because uh, children or or real property. Mm -hmm. Now that there are marriage rights in California, is there what's the next item for gay rights? I mean, is there? Well, there's a lot of um, there's currently uh, litigation in the federal courts about a statute that was enacted in California last year. California was the first state to enact oh. a law that um, bans the practice of what's called reparative therapy or conversion therapy for minors. This is um, a, 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 when, when a, say, a psychologist tries to um, get a minor to change their sexual orientation. So California passed a statute banning that practice by licensed medical care providers. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's the first law of its kind in the country. It's currently uh, being challenged in the Federal Court of Ninth Appeals. Ninth Circuit. Uh -huh. Ninth Circuit, yes. So that's one area. Um, there's, a, there's an important transgender bill that's a transgender youth bill that's a, a, been passed by the legislature in California, awaiting to see how Governor Jerry Brown acts, and I think that there are lots of. Would you, can you tell us a little bit more about that bill? I don't. I'm not extremely familiar Do with you know it. Lee? So, no, no, I, I apologize. Either. Yeah, but it, but it, mm. it's an, it provides important protections that would, I, I believe, enable transgender students oh, to. I, use yeah, the to bathroom. Use, well, that, yeah, yeah, and, yeah, exactly. Based on that their, would, um, their. Self-identified gender. Yeah, based on their oh, gender that's identity. Right, right, yeah. right. It, and using the bathroom of their. Right. Right. Yes. I think it's yeah, uh, Supervisor Ami, or Supervisor, he grew up. He's an uh, assembly member, Amiano. Uh-huh. Uh, sponsored that. That's right. Yeah. So, so there's there's still more to, more that need that could be done here in California to continue um, providing protections for the LGBT community. Right, and Lee, this California, he was just David was just saying we have a law now that it's being challenged, uh, banning therapy to change one's sexual orientation for minors. Anyway, are there other states? Are other states considering these laws? Do you know? Not that I know of. I think California, you know, has the advantages of sort of having done a lot of this work up to this point and having the domestic partnership and now marriage equality. So. They've, uh, you know, been able to to address some of the other issues, but I think uh, issues around transgender people are big in a lot of the states that have marriage equality. In New England, for instance, I know that that's that's a component of uh, legal changes that's that's sort of lag behind rights for lesbian, gay, and bisexual people. Mm -hmm. um, so people are, you know, very interested in that. And I think, you know, I, I think nationally there'll be a big turn to focus more on employment discrimination because we still don't have a federal law that bans employment discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity, despite the fact that you know more than 80% of the American public says that it agrees with a you know, with that basic principle. 
um, and thinks that it should be in law, the uh, you know the Congress has just been unable to to really take up the Employment Non-Discrimination Act. So there's still, you know, it doesn't seem very likely to happen in the near future. Mm-hmm. It may get through the Senate, but it's hard to imagine that it'll get through the House. People have put pressure on the president to sign an executive order that would at least require that of federal contractors. So I think that's a big issue that we'll probably be hearing more about, especially they do not Congress. discriminate against people exactly. based on sexual orientation. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So that would extend uh, protections to you know. Six, 15, 16 million uh, Americans who don't currently have that. Uh, we only have 21 states that protect uh, LGBT people against discrimination based on sexual orientation, and only 16 with regard to gender identity. So there's still a long way to go on the employment side of things. Even, um, have you talked a little bit, Lee, about how many states still have marriage bans and how difficult it will be to overturn some of these bans? Yeah, you guys can help me out with the actual numbers. I mean, I think there are, yeah, it does, it does. It's, it's, uh, I think so, 37 states have explicit bans of one kind or another, and many of those are in state constitutions. But there's starting to be some efforts in places like Ohio and Oregon, to actually try to undo those, even though they are in the Constitution. Um, and, uh, you know, I think what's really interesting are these new, new, new lawsuits that were just filed today in states that we wouldn't normally think of, that we wouldn't put on the list of places that look like, you know, California and New England, you know, North Carolina, Virginia, and Pennsylvania, um, none of which have any uh, you know, employment protections for LGBT people um, don't have domestic partnership, don't have civil unions, uh, but do have a lot of same-sex couples who want to get married. So I think mm-hmm. that that'll be a great test of you know what's what's changed as a result of the DOMA decision and Kennedy's arguments. Do you think it's more likely they'll be able to overturn them in the courts rather than at the ballot? Well, you guys are the experts on the courts, but yeah. so, but you know, in the last few years, it hasn't. Uh, you know, it hasn't really been the courts. It's yeah. all been in legislatures. And in some of these places where the courts had to decide, like in California, twice the legislator, legislature voted to, to enable marriage equality for same-sex couples. In New Jersey, the legislature said that, uh, that they, you know, they passed a bill. Um, it was the governors in both of those cases that said no and kind of have forced it back into the courts. So I think there's, you know, it just depends. It's, a, it's an interesting mix. I mean, it's, in Maine, they, they actually did repeal a constitutional amendment that was um, enacted uh, not long after Prop 8. And and they recently, the voters voted the other way. But the other hard thing about the courts is in the state courts, many of the state courts, the judges and even the justices at the appellate level sit for election. And so in Iowa, after the high court of that state held that it was unconstitutional under the state constitution to deny marriage uh, to same-sex couples, three of the justices who who voted for that were voted off the court because the uh, anti-marriage folks put a lot of money into getting them unelected, basically. So it, it, it the, the barriers, the, there are different barriers in different fora. It doesn't mean um, mm-hmm. anything is off limits, but I think it's probably a state-by-state calculus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And there and may it, be some states that it would take years, if not decades, for the popular sentiment to turn around mm-hmm. uh, and uh, have you know, a legislative measure or an initiative measure that would allow same-sex couples to marry. So I think a lot of people who look at this issue nationally do believe that there will reach a point where um, full equality is unlikely to come anytime soon mm-hmm. without a federal court ruling. I was going to say, well, they'll go into federal court, right? They'll have better luck with a federal judge. It's federal judges are not elected. They serve for lifetime. I mean, it's, right. it's interesting because the federal courts um, in, I mean, I clerked for uh, an appellate court justice in the South, and the, the courts down there are pretty conservative, and like the Eighth Circuit, there's a number of circuits around the country where the federal judges are also quite conservative, so we're going to have to see, I mean, hopefully um, the Senate won't stand in the way of uh, putting a few Democrats on the court um, <laughs> in the near term uh, to balance it out a little bit. But it, it's a little scary in a lot of places, even in federal court. David, what do you make of the change in support for same-sex marriage across the country? The polls have been showing rising numbers. Why? What brought that about, do you think? I think uh, the most important uh, factor probably is familiarity with, with gay and lesbian and bisexual and transgender people. I think you know one of 
I think studies show that one of the key indicators of whether someone will support uh, equality under the law for LGBT people is whether they know people uh, mm -hmm. close to them. Um, and so I do think that familiarity with real people in, in, in people's lives, their neighborhoods, their families, um, and then even on television, getting to know people to the extent you can understand people through television mm -hmm. is a key part. I also, though, would say that um, President, o President Obama's vocal support for marriage equality during an election mm -hmm. um, did also play a huge role in, um, in, in creating an atmosphere in which other people reconsidered their own views. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I think that's a really important event that happened in this history. You know, what's really interesting about that is I, I was really angry with the president for not being more vocal about it earlier, but there's a way in which his so-called evolution, which um, some people make <laughs> fun of, um, may actually have been a good thing because it gives other people permission to evolve, um, other people permission to change their minds, to reconsider, without being viewed as bigots or horrible people, to kind of take a time out and mm -hmm. think about it. So it, it's interesting. I, I may have been wrong in my prior anger. <laughs> well, Lee, there have been May. a number of, of conservative uh, Republicans have come out now, at least, and they're no longer uh, opposed to same-sex marriage, mm -hmm. sometimes because they discover they have gay kids, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> David's point. They've got a personal. It's a very powerful tool. It's a very powerful tool. <laughs> and it's not, but it's not only, you know, because their kids are gay, but also, you know, the kids who, who aren't heterosexual, who are heterosexual, you know, of some of these legislators are often, often say to their parents, get with it, what's the big deal? I mean, in, in Massachusetts, we fought back a, a, a vote on uh, the right to marry for almost two years after couples started getting married, and that's what a lot of the legislature said. They said, you know, my kids just said, you just don't get it. So I think that that's a big piece of it, too. But I think, you know, the way we've talked about marriage has evolved in the LGBT community as well. Um, I think, you know, we've talked a lot about the rights and the benefits of marriage, and can't believe I'm going to say this as the economist, but you know it's not just about that. I think as we've started to talk about you know commitment and uh, and love and having kids and sort of some of the same kinds of values that, that resonate more with you know mainstream America, I think that's also changed how people see what's at stake here. That it's mm -hmm. not just about equality. That's important. Mm -hmm. It's but it's also about it's about dignity. It's about you know, the freedom to, to marry the person that you love. And I think that shift in how we talk about it and, uh, you know, learning from, learning from some of the, the failed campaigns has made a big difference in helping mm -hmm. to, to win in some of the other states that, uh, that have recently shifted over. Did the push for marriage come primarily because mostly lesbians were having children? Families? Well, you know, so I think really that's a big piece of it. I think that the lesbian baby boom, you know, definitely <laughs> highlighted the, the, the importance of family for people, but also the, the bizarre um, evolution of law was that, you know, you could have two women who had a relationship to a kid, but not to each other. Right. And when they went to schools and to the doctor and traveled with their kids and they weren't recognized as being a family, that became a big problem. Kind of on the, on the gay male side of things, I think really the HIV epidemic really brought you know, into sharp focus how important it is to have inheritance rights and the rights to visit your, your partner in the hospital and, and all of the, the, you know, the awful stories that happened when, when men died and their partners were, were not allowed to have those same basic rights that, that spouses would have had, you know, started a, a process that led to lots of companies covering domestic partners for benefits, for mm -hmm. health insurance benefits. It led to the beginnings of, uh, uh, you know, the California's equal, San Francisco's equal benefits ordinance, which, mm -hmm. you know, dramatically spread the uh, domestic partner benefits. And we see the, the commitment of companies in these amicus briefs that were filed in these recent cases. I think that's that was a, a big piece of it. And then it led to the domestic partnership ordinances, you know, in cities and in states and civil unions and marriage. Yeah, so I think that was, that combination of those two, uh, those two big social events made a big difference. Thank you. I, I want to add, dial back a little bit, though, because I think there is even earlier roots, and that is um, when early in the gay rights efforts in general, men were more 
I think, focus on fighting for sort of a liberty and freedom and um, rights to be sexual in, in the way that people are sexual. Whereas women, a lot of the battle was over custody issues. Mm -hmm. And so the early lesbian rights efforts were focused on uh, women who were being denied custody of their children or visitation of their children because of their sexual orientation. And so when the confluence of HIV issues and the lesbian baby boom came um, into uh, kind of uh, being and, and the need for family law related recognition was seen as a more important thing broadly, the background of the lesbians who had been working on lesbian mother custody issues mm -hmm. really played a key role and, and was um, sort of a starting point. Thank you. I think we're going to open it up to questions from the audience now. Yes, thank you so much. I have certainly thank learned so much from just the thank past you. 40 minutes. Hi, Megan Carroll. I'm a student at USC. I had a question about the precedent that the DOMA case set. And I'm not a lawyer, so I'm hoping you'll bear with my vocabulary and give some insight. I, I heard some analysts at UCLA a couple years ago before the Supreme Court agreed to take up Windsor that they were hoping they would choose Windsor out of the several cases dealing with DOMA because a lower court had used strict scrutiny in making their decision. So I was looking for that when I read the Supreme Court's decision on DOMA, and they kind of went between discrimination and states' rights as the reason behind their decision. So I wanted to know from you if you thought that this decision sets precedent to include LGBT rights under the rubric of strict scrutiny, or if it's just a states' rights issue. That's a very, very good question. Um, and your terminology was excellent. Um, uh, so the, the question she's talking about is the issue of when the courts are looking at a law that allegedly discriminates based on sexual orientation, what standard of review should the courts apply to it? Normally, when the courts review a statute, the courts presume that the statute is constitutional and require the person challenging the law to show there's no rational basis for the law whatsoever. That's the regular standard for reviewing a law. There are certain categories, classifications, that if a law draws, like distinguishing between people based on their race or distinguishing people based on their sex, when, the, when a statute does that, the courts apply a higher level of scrutiny. They look more closely at the law to see if it really is furthering a really compelling need and whether it's being done in a narrow way. And it's up to the state to prove that the law is justified. So one of the hopes of many people who litigate uh, LGBT rights issues was that in one of these cases, the court would say, you know what, going forward, when we're faced with a law that discriminates based on sexual orientation, we're not going to assume it's valid. We're going to presume that it's invalid or questionable and make the government prove that there's an adequate justification for it. In the DOMA case, Windsor was the name of the case that the Supreme Court decided, they didn't reach that question of whether a law that discriminates based on sexual orientation should be looked at really closely. They didn't reach that because applying what they called careful consideration <laughs> to DOMA, they found that, um, that it, it didn't serve a legitimate government interest and that it even was motivated by what the court called animus um, towards the class of people, which was same-sex couples that are in a marriage that's valid by a state. So they didn't reach that question. Save it for another day. I, I think there's seeds of it. I think the, the fact that um, Justice Kennedy's opinion uh, really pretty strongly came to the conclusion that there's, a, that there's animus going on, that there's anti-gay antipathy, um, tells you something about at least his lens and presumably that of others who are with him. But uh, they absolutely did not um, squarely address the question. You know, David, I've heard that this court is not all that interested in the standard review. I mean, I know for gay rights lawyers, it's been huge heightened scrutiny, but our Supreme Court reporter, he said they never seem to care about it. And in fact, sexual orientation 
it's not clear what it is. I mean, well, it's more than rational. Yeah. yeah, what the standard is. It, 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 I think it's scary, frankly. I think some of the justices would do away with strict scrutiny for race and gender, for heightened scrutiny for gender. Heightened if they scrutiny had, for gender, sure. And it has been decades, decades, since the Supreme Court has announced a high standard of review for a group that didn't already have it. In other words, you'd have to go back, I believe, to the 70s to find the Supreme Court saying, here's a group that should get, who's, um, that, who's discriminate, who laws discriminate against them should, that should get uh, heightened scrutiny. So um, it was only in the 1970s that the Supreme Court said that laws that discriminate based on sex should be looked at carefully. That was only in the 1970s, and um, in the last. And that's not even strict scrutiny, is it? Or? No. no, no, just below it. It's, yeah. it's yeah. called <laughs> heightened scrutiny. Heightened scrutiny. Okay. Yeah. To the extent that Justice Kennedy's uh, majority decision in the Doma case had a lot of language about states' rights in it, in which direction does that cut for future challenges to states that pass constitutional? Um, uh, not necessarily only constitutional, but especially constitutional prohibitions on same-sex marriage, because you can imagine both conservatives and progressives using uh, Justice Kennedy's rationale with the progressives using the equal protection part of the analysis to strike down those bans, but then conservatives arguing, well, all that states' rights language should recognize the, the right of states also to not recognize same-sex marriage. Which direction do you think that cuts future cases. Well, I'll just comment and then I'll let you also comment. I, I think one, one interesting point is that uh, Justice Kennedy talked about this state's rights, well not really state's rights issue, but the state power and how the state is the one that normally recognizes marriages and then said, but please bear in mind I'm not deciding the case based on that. So he put that discussion in there and then turned to the equality argument and what the who the states let marry has always been understood as subject to the federal equal protection clause. When I say always, has you know in our era been understood as subject to equal protection requirements. So the Supreme Court in the 1960s said that interracial couples had to be permitted to marry. Um, so I, I, I think there's language in there that people might pluck out and use for various purposes, but ultimately um, there's nothing in the opinion that answers the question. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that um, Justice Kennedy talked about it from the perspective of, look, what Congress did in enacting DOMA was really unusual because after a tradition of, you know, a century or more of, a, of basically accepting states' definition of marriage, suddenly when uh, the prospect of, of gay people marrying is on the horizon in a state, namely Hawaii, uh, the, the, they, they, they do a U-turn and say, well, no, 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 we're not going to accept what the states do. And he said the, the, the relevance of that is that it, it's, a, it's a strange kind of a um, real change um, in the way that Congress has dealt with this. And it me means we need to look more carefully at the issue of whether the law was motivated, in fact, by animus. Um, he didn't um, use federalism as a reason for striking down DOMA. Um, it really is an equal protection, liberty, uh, due process is the liberty piece um, decision. But I, but it, but it, it was, um, I think, more by way of looking at what in the heck were they doing and what's this really about. I've been in a long distance relationship, and for the past three years, uh, my fiance. Now I can see my fiance, and I have mm -hmm. been wanting to become a family. So my question is how easy um, or what process um, would I partake? He's a uh, foreign national who lives in Spain where same-sex marriage is legal. So how would I do that and the petition process? And I understand now that I can't do that. I'm not an expert at all, and I don't know if you guys are on, on international law. All I can say is that um, however heterosexual people um, achieve um, the immigration issue. And I don't know whether it makes a difference whether you marry in a foreign country and come here with that marriage or whether you need to have the marriage in the United States. It may not matter, but I, if I were in your shoes, I think I would talk to an immigration lawyer because you don't want to um, make a misstep when it's really clear that you will now have the right to marry and um, your significant other can then become 
uh, a legalized citizen in this country if that's what you want. Um, and of course, if you want to go to Spain, that's a whole nother, then a Spanish immigration letter. Right. <laughs> With regard to people who are registered domestic partners, um, have you heard anything of proposing a conversion to marriage where maybe you could opt out if you don't want to? Uh, because if everybody's going to have to convert by actually getting married, I waited in line three hours the other day in Beverly Hills. That's going to be a real problem in terms of their courts and the, the system, the registrar and all that. But it seemed to me there's an easier way to do that is just, uh, like I said, if you had an opt-out provision, you didn't want to convert, but otherwise it would be automatic and you'd just be married. Some states have done that. Some states that have adopted marriage have, have done an automatic conversion. There's no such uh, measure on the table right now in California. The legislature doesn't have any such bill in front of it that would, would convert domestic partnerships. And uh, you know, as we've discussed before, there are some uh, differences between domestic partnership and marriage that um, some couples may want to maintain, and particularly couples who uh, have issues related to Social Security. Um, so I, I don't see right now any movement afoot in California to have such a conversion requirement. Uh, a, a domestic partners in California are allowed to get married. So you can have both statuses. You, right. You don't have to dissolve your domestic partnership. But one thing I would say is um, uh, you don't have to get your marriage license or have it solemnized in the county where you live. So to the extent that you... Um, you know, if the line in uh, Beverly Hills just doesn't seem to be getting any, I mean, I think it will uh, calm down a little bit. But uh, you could go to the next county. Oh, come to San Francisco. Yeah. <laughs> Same-sex couples like to get married in the summer, so just wait them out. <laughs> I'm Ellen Stein, and I'm wondering how the kinds of legislation enacted in California banning things like aversion uh, therapy can be made legally consistent with the fight for reproductive rights, because it seems like we're getting into what medical professionals or other professionals do and that we're legislating that, which is something in the reproductive rights area we certainly don't necessarily want. Is there going to be a conflict there, or is there a legal theory that can harmonize those? In the case that's currently pending about the conversion therapy bill or law here in California, um, those who are defending the law are, are talking about that issue. And uh, the, the issue can arise, for example, some states may pass laws trying to restrict what an abortion provider can say to a patient or to actually prohibit the abortion provider from saying certain things or require the abortion provider to say certain things. Um, and those, those types of laws are, you know, they do get challenged when they're enacted. Um, in the conversion therapy instance, um, one of the questions that the Court of Appeals will have to decide is when a federal court is analyzing a statute that a state has enacted to regulate a medical field, medical professionals in the provision of care, what standard do the courts apply when they're looking at that? Similar to the other question we talked about earlier, what standard do you apply when you review a law that discriminates based on sexual orientation? So there, uh, that, the question of how you look at such a law is, is on the table. Um, uh, there, you know, there are arguments that that, ha that has, question has already been answered. Other people say, no, the question isn't answered. But we'll have to wait and see what the courts say. But that issue is definitely been raised, what you what your question suggests. And just to be clear to the audience, that I think the issue concerns really First Amendment um, claims for the most part. That is, um, the, the concern is that if you can, you know, sort of gag doctors or other professionals, um, then both they can't speak and the patients or clients can't hear. And that's the kind of argument that's been made against the, soci the, the sexual orientation change um, legislation. But... Um, as David said, whether you look at it as speech or as a, a practice that you're regulating and how um, he heavily you scrutinize it and what kind of justification is required. Here also we're dealing with minors, so it doesn't mean that doesn't come up in the reproductive rights um, co um, context because it does, but it's, um, you know, I think it's a narrow issue. Yeah. 
my first question is basically, how much do you think such organizations such as Get Equal or Marriage Equality had that might have accelerated the, the progress of legislation as opposed to the human rights campaign and what have you that tend to be a bit more on the sidelines on this issue and been more vocal during the Obama administration? And second side would be, I vaguely remember that I think Scalia spoke about civic courage and how important it is for people who want to put on legislation or on a ballot initiative that they need to disclose what they're voting for. What, has there been any more talk about uh, transparency when it comes to initiatives and that kind of stuff that might you know, take the rights away from a certain class or a certain group? I'm gonna leave the first question to you guys because I, I don't have a really good answer except that I think all the groups are uh, play important roles, diff different roles. But um, on this, the question about um, the civic courage and the, uh, the case is Doe versus Reed that you're referring to, and it has to do with uh, whether people who signed petitions to put something on the ballot um, uh, had to be uh, publicly disclosed, um, which the state law required, or whether that violated their uh, First Amendment rights to be anonymous, so to speak. And the court said they didn't get to be anonymous um, at least across the board. There had to be some showing of some terrible harassment before you could justify that. There is a case pending that we actually are a defendant in that challenged California's state um, disclosure law for donors, anybody who gives over $100 to a ballot measure. And the protectmarriage.com people actually filed that case. And we prevailed in the trial court and now it's on appeal in the Ninth Circuit. Um, given Doe v. Reed, I'm fairly optimistic about how it will come out that the disclosure laws will stay. I, I think the disclosure laws are important. I think that um, ballot measures are, are basically driven by money and it might be a lot of small contributions or a lot of big and, and people are, I mean, I don't know about you, but when I vote, I wanna know who's supporting and who's opposing and um, kind of where, where the money's coming from, um, who's benefiting, who's, who's not. Um, and, and it's an important right to know. On the first question, what I, what I would say is that uh, I think it's pretty, it's becoming pretty clear that this movement for equality for LGBT people is really broad-based. And uh, there, there's no one organization or, or one state or one group of people that's responsible. There has been a, a, a groundswell of, of support for this issue that I think has followed from increased understanding. And um, there are all different types of organizations, grassroots organizations, legal, legal organizations, political organizations, congregations, leaders, individuals that have uh, all played a role in this. And I think if you were to write the history of this, uh, it's, it's not the story of any one person or one group. It's a, it's a confluence of efforts all over the country. Thank you so much. And with that, we hope to see everyone upstairs at the reception. Thank you, guys.